Hello, thank you for listening to this sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allow you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. Children are dismissed for Children's Church. Again, we have a special two weeks here, last week and this week, so sixth grade and below. We have two classes. If you'd like to go and be a part of that, go have fun and enjoy. Um, you just heard on the video from one of our missionaries. Uh, we've done this the last two two years with the Christmas Project. And I just want to thank you. Uh, and also, I, I want to celebrate. I'm not real good at this. Um, I'm, I'm my coaching mentality. That's the way I approach things. And I just keep pursuing. And yes, yay, we did a good job. On to the next thing. And uh, But I... I just want to pause, and I just want to call to attention, and I want to give God glory. Not for us to pat ourselves on the back, but that God would get the glory, and that we would see some excitement in the fact that we set a large goal, $25,000 to raise in in a two-month period of time. And God blessed through you and through the generosity of the people of West Hill and we met that goal for Christmas, $25,000 that God brought in. Isn't that awesome? Yes, yes. Let's celebrate that. It's okay to get excited. You know, last week, Greg said amen in the middle of the service. I'm like, yes, yeah. He's like, I started getting a little fired up. I'm like, yeah, it's okay when you sit you're not just being an audience. This isn't entertainment. We seek to honor God. And it's part of that is your participation. Now, now some of you, I'm not saying that you need to like yell out things or start throwing things at me, but it is exciting to see the hand of God working. And I think sometimes, uh, sometimes we get caught up in, in our pursuit of God and we see the things that have gone wrong or the things that are, are tearing the world apart, the negativity and, and sometimes we lose sight of the goodness of God and how he is still working in people's lives. Do you believe that? I do. And I believe that God is at work. We've seen that. We saw that with the Christmas project. We saw that with uh, uh, Phil and Polly Heiselman and their baptism um, a couple weeks ago. Uh, God is at work. And I, I hope and I pray that he is continuing to work in your heart and your life as well. We're, we're here in, uh, in, in a great day, and I just want to apologize for those of you who were here last week. I, I'm really sorry. I really try hard. I know it, sometimes it doesn't seem like it. I do really try hard to be sensitive to your time. And I know a lot of you will say, Pastor, you just preach. Don't worry about the time. Last week was hopefully an anomaly, okay, where I went longer and, uh, and I guess Zach prayed in their class this morning, their greenhouse class, that I wouldn't preach for three hours um, today. But I, I'm, I'm here, and I want to share the word, and we're going to dig in, and we're going to go fast, okay? I really should not have done what I did. I, I, I did this series in, in hoping that I could cover it in two weeks. Um, if you're new this morning, we're really glad that you're here. You jumped into something really heavy and something really deep and uh, we're not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to talk about it because I think it's in God's word. And I think he gives us clarity. And I think that gives us uh, hopefully a peace and hopefully a joy. And when we think about sexuality, the scriptures are pretty clear. And uh, there are some questions that could be uh, that we can ask. But I, I believe, again, as we look at God's word, there's answers here. And so um, we're, we're going to jump in here, this two-week series Joyful sexuality. Uh, I I hope that by the end you will say, yeah, there is joy in in, in what God says and doing it God's way. Um, first, I, I want to be careful because I know we all come with different backgrounds, with different approaches, and so I want to be careful when we first start here and the assumptions that each of us bring to the table. And so when you're looking and you're thinking about your assumptions. Uh, I want to just clarify just the assumption that I have um, towards you. And that's two assumptions as we, as we look at the Word of God. And I talked a little bit about this last week, but I just want to clarify. And, and let me ask you a question. Do you believe the Bible to be God's perfect Word and its life-giving truth? Do you believe that? 
because I believe that God's word, the Bible, is God's perfect word to us, and it's the life-giving truth. It's not to squash us. It's not to beat us down. It gives us life. The other thing is, is that his word is the final authority, even above my own thoughts, my feelings, my culture, and even above my situation. I want to read that to you again. I believe that his word, the Bible, the full truth, uh, is the authority. It's the final authority over even my thoughts, my feelings, my culture, and even my situation. I hope that's true for you. It's easy to be caught up in where we're at and to think of our situations or think of my feelings and for them to have more authority over what God's word says. And part of that is, is because I, I think people get caught into that trap because they don't know the Bible. We're illiterate. We live in a culture of illiteracy. We don't know God's word very well. And that's why I read to you last week a lot of passages. And that's why this morning we're going to dig in and we're going to look at a lot of passages again. Because I want you to know and understand not what Pastor Aaron thinks on what joyful sexuality looks like, but what God's word says about joyful sexuality. Okay? So now that we've got that basis laid, will you pray with me before we dig in? Lord, we thank you again for your word. We believe that your word is perfect and complete, and that gives us life. And it is the final authority of our life. And so we come here this morning opening up your word, asking your spirit to work in our minds and our hearts. Challenge us, mold us. Lord, help us to wrestle with as we face the culture that we live in and the difficulties that may be even in some of our own close relatives and friends. Lord, that we would know how better to understand your truth. And as we learn and gain more insights into your word, that it would also cause us in return to obey your word, that we would be obedient to you. Lord, we pray for your spirit to show up in a big way here today. And may you work in us. May we be changed because we've come and met with you today in this place. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I got one more note here. Last week, I talked about my uh, um, pastor's wife, and I didn't say pastor's wife. I just said pastor, and then I said she told us. I just want to let you know, Mrs. Elmore, all right, the pastor's wife, I do, I do this all the time. Some of you might not even caught it, but my wife at the kitchen last Sunday afternoon, she's like, hey, I just wanted to let you know you missed a word. Like, probably an important word talking about sexuality, like, and I'm like, oh man, like, okay, Marsha Elmore, our pastor's wife, and it was really cool. She told us as a kid, the simple illustration of taking a candle and allowing God to do his work and to illuminate the different areas of our life, of our heart and, and the spirit of God taking that candle. So I'm just clarifying. I want to clear that. Now I'm moving on. Here we go. If you have your Bibles, move on with me, if you would, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. We're going to look at five, five uh, areas, um, uh, five passages that are going to talk a little bit about sexual immorality. And then we're going to look at a bunch of passages that help us to understand what's our response as we seek to live out a life um, that is pure and that is right. And how we deal and how we look at sexual immorality. So first is Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. What I want to do as right before we get into this, because it's going to talk about all of our passages, these first five especially, are going to talk about sexual immorality. And I need to define that term for you, okay? I think it's important how we define that term. Sexual immorality, and you can look up the Greek word, and it's pornea, it's where we get pornography from, Sexual, uh, sexual immorality can be defined easily, I believe, as we look at the Word of God and what He says to us in this way. Sexual immorality is any sexual act outside of the union of a heterosexual one-man, one-woman marriage. Okay? Sexual immorality is any sexual act outside of the union of one man and one-woman marriage. I'll say it one more time. Again, this is... Uh, I meant to say this earlier. 
if you get offended because you think that I'm speaking to you this morning, I did not follow you around this week. I have not made my sermon based upon one person or a bunch of people. What I'm sharing to you this morning is what the Word of God and what the Holy Spirit has led me to share. And so if you feel convicted, please, you deal with that with God. And you can be mad at me, but be more mad at God, okay? Because he's the one speaking to you. All right? Listen to him, please. Have a humble spirit and listen to what God has to say. Sexual immorality is any, any sexual act outside of the union of a one man and one woman marriage. And so when we think about that, that cuts to a lot of different things, right? And we won't go through all of them this morning, but it's important. How do you define sexual immorality? How do you define it? Because how you define it is going to be critical how you view these verses that we're going to look at. All right. Are you coming at it from your lens and how you see it? Or are you coming at it from what God's word says? Last week, we looked at a lot of passages that helped us to define sexual immorality. If you missed it, you can go back online. You can go to uh, YouTube, West Hill Media, and you can look it up and you can follow along there. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul writes this. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And he's going to con continue. Th this is a pastor's worst nightmare, for, at least for me, because I don't give you, get to give you context on a lot of these. I'm just pulling verses out. So bear with me, okay? Uh, what's, what's, what's Paul saying here? Put to death, right? What are you putting to death? When you put something to death, what happens to it? It exists no longer, right? It's, not, it's no longer there. It's no longer alive. It can't have control over you. It is no, no burden, and it is not there. And so Paul is saying, listen, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, flip over to the book of Ephesians. Back just a few pages. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. In the first two verses, he's saying here in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, be an imitators of God, uh, walk in love. And then he says, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper amongst the saints. And so sexual immorality is not even to be named among us as brothers, as followers, the saints, it says. Again, Galatians chapter 5 back a few more verses or uh, the book before Galatians chapter five, verse 19. He's talking about keeping in step with the spirit here. And in verse 19, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 18. Now verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. And it keeps going on the list. And so we see here the works of the flesh. What's a work of the flesh? Sexual immorality. What's sexual immorality? Any act, any sexual act outside of the union of one man and woman in marriage. First Corinthians chapter five. Now we're going to camp here in first Corinthians. So if you're struggling to follow along, you can turn here. First Corinthians chapter five. And then we're going to kind of work our way through chapter five. We're going to look at the first five verses first, and then we're going to go through uh, chapter 5, and then chapter 6, and then chapter 7, and then in chapter 10. So Paul has a lot to say with the church that's in Corinth. They're really wrestling with this, this uh, idea and the, the problem of sexual immorality. And we see evidence by how much Paul is talking about it here in this first letter to the church. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. He says, it is... It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not tolerant even among pagans. So let me pause there. There are different kinds, right? Paul is saying, hey, there's sexual immorality and there's a kind that is being reported. So this is not the vast list that, that tells us what sexual morality, immorality is. It's not all of it. So don't judge sexual immorality by this one 
this one sin that, that Paul is pulling out, okay? But what we see here is there is not one, this not one that should be tolerated, even amongst the pagans. And so how does he describe it? For man has had his father's wife. He says, are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And if I, if I, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What we see here is this, there's a, a man, and he probably has some kind of leadership role in the church here. And he has been accepted. His sexual act has been known by people, and, he, and it has been accepted. And this act of sexual immorality, of having sex with his father's wife. Now, we saw, again, last week... How do you know that's sin? Well, Leviticus tells us, Leviticus 18 tells us, this is, you shall not have sexual relations with your father's wife. All right? It makes it very clear. We see an example of this that's played out in Genesis 35, um, verse 22, where Reuben takes Jacob's concubine, Bilhah, and he sleeps with her. Reuben is the oldest, and ultimately, Reuben suffers great consequence because he loses his, his birthright, and he loses all the blessings that go along with that. Ultimately, Reuben is judged much later on, even though Jacob doesn't do anything there in Genesis uh, 35. He, he deals with him at the end of his life, and how, how the consequences of his sexual immorality were carried on. This is a big deal, and we look at this, and we kind of laugh, and we're like, yeah, I, I don't see that. The point is... There is sin that has come into the camp, all right? There's sin that has in, in, in come into the church here, and, and people have accepted it. And Paul is saying, listen, act as like I'm there. If I were there, my very spirit, my flesh were there, even though I'm there in spirit, I'm writing this to you, this is what I would do, and this is what I would ask you to do. And he defines this, that you would deliver this man up to Satan for deliverance. Why would he go to that extreme? Because the flesh is only temporary, right? That his spirit may be so saved. This believer wants to do whatever he wants. He's not convicted of his sin. And so in his non-conviction, Paul says, listen, this, this guy needs thrown out. There's always been a call for the church to be holy. But the problem is we as a church are unholy people. Holy, we sang about it this morning. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, as he stands and as he sees God, he, he, he is confronted with who he really is and the beauty and the splendor of God. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips. How, how could I speak for the beauty and the glory and the holiness of, of the perfect God? And it's almost like God's like, yes, you get it, Isaiah. Let me take one of these coals and touch your lips. I will purify you. That's us. We need purified. And that's where our walk with Jesus starts. And that's what Jesus offers to us. While he offers us eternal life because of his shed blood, because of what he did on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, he also gives us life here now, a relationship with Jesus that we get to enjoy as we walk on the face of this earth, that we could be holy. Holy means not perfect. Holy means to be set apart, distinct, that we would be holy people, distinct and set apart from whom? From the world. And part of that is the way that we live our lives and the way that we view sex and sexual immorality. Let's jump down just a few verses now to verse 9. Paul says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. Let me just pause. Some of us, we just want to take that verse and live it. Don't stop there. 
Look at the whole word of God. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexual immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers and the idolaters. Since then, you would have need to go out of the world. But now, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I had I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. There's a lot to try to unpack here, and I won't take the time to talk about judging and not judging and all of that. There is a standard of purity that God desires for us to live. And when we see a brother or a sister that, that flippantly and that easily just lives outside of that standard, we're to call them back in to repentance. And when that person doesn't want to repent... And they don't want to do what God's word says. How are we to treat them? Notice who we are treating though. Who are we judging? It's the one who calls themselves brother. It's the one who says, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a believer of Jesus Christ. Then we ask, why would you live that way then? Why do you allow sexual immorality to be a part of your life. It isn't the judgment of the outside world. See, we, what we want to do is because we know we have struggles. We know we have problems, right? We want to look for those that are plain and obvious. We want to go outside and let's deal with all of those outsiders. That's wrong. The LGBTQ plus all this stuff is evil and bad. Yes, it is sin. But as we looked at last week, nothing new is under the sun. What we're seeing and encountering in our culture is wrong and it's evil and it's hideous. And we're going to talk about at the end today, how do we, how do we deal with the outsiders? But Paul is giving us instruction. How do we deal with that inside of the church? And sexual immorality has rocked the church in America for the last 30 years. It's become acceptable that these little sexual sins are not a big deal. Let's face it. We all struggle with sin. I'm not here judging you in a way that throws the stone. I have a glass house. I'm a man who is unpure. It's only by the grace of God that I stand here and, and have had the opportunity to live with my wife and to be faithful to her and her to be faithful to me. It's not because I'm something special. It's because of the purity and the goodness of God. And so when I ask and when I challenge us as a church to, to understand what this looks like, it isn't out of the, out of the mindset that I'm better than you because I struggle just like you. And I think for too long, the church has, has built up that if you struggle with sexual immorality, that, that, you're an out, that you're an outcast or that Satan has lied to you and said, oh, you're weird. You're not like anybody else. Nobody else struggles like you do. And there's nothing further than the truth. Let me clarify real quick. To be tempted is not sin. When we're tempted, how we respond to sin, how we respond to that temptation will either lead us to obedience or to sin. We're going to look at a passage in a little bit where God gives us a way of escape from that temptation. I'm not saying that we're not tempted or that you're never going to be tempted because now you're a follower of Jesus and life is going to be great. You're never going to have any problems. You can get rid of your TV, you can get rid of your radio, you can get rid of 
go into the main grocery stores and go to all your little shops that don't have any magazines in the front aisle, you will still be tempted. It's out there. Sexual immorality is real. Here we see there's an act of sexual immorality that's reported that not even the world would say that it's okay. And it's been allowed in the church. And Paul says, no. As the church, we're called to a higher standard. So let's continue. Um, we've seen verses 9 through 13 and how, how, we, how we associate with the world, but how we associate with the brother. Now let's jump over to chapter 6, the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who has joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Our body. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your body was bought for a price. Not from blood of bulls and goats, but with, from the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so that you don't own your body. I don't know about you, but I walk around sometimes like I own it. Right? I ate a lot of Snickers yesterday. I told you about that box a few weeks ago that sits on top of our fridge that has all those Halloween and Christmas candy. Hopefully we don't get too many Valentine's candies in there, but I don't always look and view at my body as not my own. Sometimes I view it in a very selfish and desiresome way. And Paul is reminding us here, it's, it's not about what I want. It's not about my desire. That runs contrary to what you hear every day outside in the world. Right? Would you agree that outside in the world, the world is telling you, you deserve it. You can do it. It's up to you. It's your body. It's your right. No, that's not what God's word says. Not what Aaron says, what God's word says. And he says, listen, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. So what? What does he say here? The last verse. So glorify God in your what? In your body. Don't be sexually immoral. And he says, listen, all the other sins you, you commit are outside of the body. But there's something unique and special. There's something Something that God has given us as a man who joins with a woman that makes it unique. When God instituted marriage, he said that there will be one man and one woman and they join together to be one. God did that. God made it that way. And there's great blessing from that. We glorify God, not only through our lips, not only through our actions, we glorify God with how we deal with our body. Let's jump 
Let's keep going now, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Now, concerning the matter about which you wrote, quote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Mainly just to say, hey, let's just get rid of it all. <laughs> Maybe this is the best way. If it's that big of a struggle, let's not, let's just get rid of sex totally. Paul writes this, verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband shall give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then coming together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's temptation, sexual temptation. It's real. And God knew that. And he gave Adam a, a spouse, a wife. He gave him Eve. God has given us marriage. Marriage not just to gratify ourselves. Not to be able to just fulfill our needs in a, in a very selfish way. But God knew that as men and women, we have sexual desires. It's part of how God has created us. And Paul is writing here, God has given us marriage. And what is, how does he define it? With one man and one woman. He's given you a husband or he's given you a wife. And you are to come together to have sexual relations. So that you may not be tempted to find the fulfillment in somewhere else. And so men... Don't treat your body as you own it. Another reminder in the context of what we just read. Your body is your wife's. And wives, you don't own your body. Your husband. I am not saying that you get to do whatever you want to do with your spouse. Do not, do not hear that. Because all throughout scripture, again, become knowledgeable of what the Bible says. Husbands, we are to love our wives like Christ loved the church and he gave his life for the church. So as husbands, would we not want to be and desire to be that unselfish that we would lay down our own rights and privileges and our own desires Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays and he says, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. If you would take this cup from me, but if not, I'm here to obey you. Men, we need to do that. Husbands, we need to act and treat our wives like that. In the same way, wives, don't hold back. Don't be demanding. Love your husband. Give to him. Even if he's undeserving, even if he doesn't love you like Christ loved the church. You get to honor God by, by loving your husband in a way that shows your love for Jesus. In the same way, wives, submit to your husbands. Submit to your husbands like Jesus submitted to the Father's will. Submission is not some, I'm going to demean you and make you some, some mat, that doormat that I can step all over. Submission says, I love you and I desire to love you and to love Jesus. Man, we've twisted it, haven't we? We've made it something that we can't even talk about freely in the church anymore. Mem marriage is, is, is a beautiful thing when it's done in the boundaries of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll keep rolling here. Big passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. 
It says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and into the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What Paul is writing is he's recounting what the Israelites went through in their 40 years. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Why do we have what we have? So we can learn and we can grow, right? All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us. We looked at that last week. Paul is writing here, we have these things, these examples that we might not desire evil like they did. That we would see the consequences of pursuing evil and we would say, whoa, I better not do it. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were dis destroyed by the dis destroyer. Let me pause there for a moment. What we see here is this example from Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25, and I want to read it to you so that you, that you can see what Paul's referencing. Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. It should be on the screen for you. While Israel lived in, um, in Shechem, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. I love that word, don't you? It's like... I don't really love it, but it's interesting that it's in the Bible. Helps us to realize that what God says is like, it's real, right? All right. So the Israel was living in Shittim and the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman of, to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of the meeting. Let me just pause for a second here. So we get this picture. God has told Israel not to intermarry with other nations. Israel chooses to do that. And so they're whoring with these daughters. Uh, and, and as they're sleeping with them and marrying them, God says, listen, I want you to take all the chiefs who are supposed to be leading the people, and I want you to hang them. All right, very physical uh, presence where, where the people would see, see judgment. It's a picture of God's judgment of people hanging or being staked in, in outside or right by the, the, the gate or the courts of, of, of the, the nation as they were there. And as they're there and doing this, people are weeping and there's a call to repentance. But there is someone who takes a Midianite woman, right, and brings her. And while all this is happening, he takes her as his wife. Just to say, God, I'm going to do what I want to do. You ever see that done today? You ever see people who claim to be followers of Jesus and who some are followers of Jesus? And they say, no, you got it all wrong. I'm going to do it my way. Notice what happens here. So he takes a Midianite woman with his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation. Verse 7. When Phineas, he's related to Ferb, by the way. Just, just lighthearted, okay? A little joke. Um, when Phineas, as the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So Aaron is his grandfather. Aaron the priest. 
So we see Phineas, he sees this. Verse 7, he saw it, he rose, he left the congregation, and he took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Phineas is given great reward from this point forward for his actions. He's saying, you will not desecrate what God desires to be holy. It's a call to holiness. Paul, as he's writing in 1 Corinthians 10, as the people are hearing this, they're calling back from their memory of hearing this story in Numbers and they would know exactly what Paul is referencing and what he's talking about. And he is saying, you need to flee sexual immorality. Don't let it be a part. We have these examples. We know what's going to come if we go that route. All right, Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Romans chapter 13, 11 through 14, Paul writes to the believers in Rome. And again, hopefully, I asked you last week, if you didn't do it, I'd encourage you to do it this week. Do a little background, do a little study on what Rome was like in this first century. All right, first, second century, what was Rome like? How were the outsiders, as Paul would label them in Corinth, how were the outsiders living? And then notice what he says to the believers here. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. It says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleeping. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, jealousy but put on the, the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We walk around today and we could care less about what people think about my desire to gratify myself because it's okay. You read the self-helps and you read even what some people as Christians will say that is tolerable and what is okay when it comes to sexual morality and sexual immorality. Paul is saying, listen, the time is coming closer. And we would, uh, we would agree, would we not? Jesus is coming sooner today than when it was when we first believed. Jesus is coming it's daytime. Act like it's daytime. Don't be sleeping. Don't do the things that you would do in the dark. The hidden things. The things that you, you know nobody else is looking at and nobody else can see you. No, wake up. Act like it's night. It's daytime. It's not night anymore. And he says, put on the armor, which he tells us in Galatians what that armor looks like. We can put on the armor in, in Ephesians. And, and yet here we are, and he says, make no provision for the flesh. What about you? Are you gratifying yourself? Some of you, I'm sure, are struggling and wrestling with that. And let me encourage you, don't believe the lie to think that you're all by yourself. Or that you're the only person who has ever struggled. Because it's not true. It's not true. If you're struggling with a sexual sin, find a friend. Bring it to the light. Be open and talk to your spouse. Seek help. A lot of this that we cover, it's pretty heavy. And it seems like it's like all these things that you shouldn't do, right? And you kind of approach it and you're like, Meh. 
like, this is a downer. Actually, what, what we see in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, it says, let marriage be held in, in honor among you. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual, immoral, and adulterers. Actually, what we see is marriage should be held in great honor. And yet we live in a culture in a day that says, well, we, you got to figure out whether or not you're compatible before you get married. No, that's not the way God said. That's why I love, if you ever get a chance, just read some stories of old-time couples, well-seasoned couples, that, that, that as they were arranged, like an arranged marriage, and what it meant for them to learn to love each other. And, and the, the hard work and the sacrifice that it took. Man, I, I had one professor in college, and he shared with us, they were they were. He, he was very old, but he, he, they were an arranged marriage. And he said the first year was awful, but they kept working at it and they kept working at it. And they just loved each other and they learned what it meant to love each other. And if you're here as a husband and wife, there is hope for you. And if you're here as a single or if you're dating or if one day you want to get married, listen, marriage should be held in high honor. God gave us marriage as a gift. It is a blessing. But as we look at it and what the writer of Hebrews says, marriage is held in honor, yes, but don't defile the marriage bed. And I think that can be viewed as before and during. What happens before you get married? Remember our definition of sexual immorality. While you may not see premarital sex shared in the Bible, what does it mean to not have premarital sex? It was assumed you're not going to be out sleeping with one another. Because the moment that you sleep with somebody, you're bonding yourself with them for life. And then Moses writes the certificate of divorces, right? And the, the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and Matthew, and he, he asked, they ask him, hey, what do you mean? Why is this allowed? And Jesus says, it's because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed that. Meaning this is not the intention of our God. I won't take time to look at it. First Thessalonians 4, just so that we're very clear. First Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8, it talks about abstaining from sexual immorality that we are called to live in holiness. So how do we live today? How do we live with a joyful sexuality and with the mindset and the heart set that God desires? Before we get to that, I want to clarify a couple things. Again, I don't have time to do in-depthness. I should have made this a longer series. But when it comes to transgender, gender identity, in the struggles of that, again, this is not new. It's not something new. While the Bible doesn't talk a lot about it, the Bible does talk about male and female. In Genesis 127, God created male and female. He created them. Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, references Genesis 127 and Genesis 2:24, male and female becoming one in marriage. We've seen a couple passages where it talks about male and female even today. There isn't an assumption that there are other things out there. Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 says, talks about how a man shouldn't dress in woman's clothing. What do you think that talks about? Transvestite, right? While, while the Bible doesn't go into great detail about all the sexual immoral, moral uh, immorality and what it, how it's defined. There are some examples that help us to see what it is and how to live a pure life. When we view sex, I think we should look at it in two ways because of how the Bible t tells us. It is pleasurable. Why would we do it if it wasn't? 
I mean, ask yourself that. For some, it's more pleasurable than others, but we think of that in a recreational type. Song of Solomon 4 talks about that. Proverbs 5, verse 19 talks about letting the wife of your youth satisfy. As a man, you're satisfied through the wife of your youth. So while there is great pleasure and recreation with our spouse, that is the only sole purpose of marriage. We don't hear this a lot today, but let me tell you, there's also this provision that sex does, and it's called procreation. That God has given us this institute that he created between one man and one woman, putting them together and saying, this is how I want you to populate the world. So inside of this family structure that God has instituted, because who instituted marriage? It wasn't something that man came up with. God instituted it. And if God institutes it, we should listen. And so in that, it's what he intends. And so the, the, the makeup of the family is critical to the health of the believer and to the church. So what do we do with all the other junk that happens because of sin, our own sin, and other people's sin? Jesus came, and John 1, 14, it says, Jesus came in the fullness of grace and truth. I wish I had that. It's something that when I came across that passage several years ago that I began praying and asking the Lord to give me. We usually tend to lean one way or the other, some more love, some more, more truth, some more grace. They're more gracious and others like this is the truth. You, you can probably figure out where you are and where you land. It says that Jesus came in the fullness of that. And so he was complete in both grace and truth. And that's what we need. We need to be more like Jesus in that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, tells us to speak the truth in love. As we talk about the truth, the, the truth does not allow us the opportunity to belittle, to look down, or to think that another man, woman, or child is less than. Every one of us, Every human being on the face of this earth has been created in the image of God. We are flawed, every one of us, in different ways. But when we view and see another person as not being created by God, we're sinning. And we don't see them as God sees them. And so we share the truth, we speak the truth, but we do it from a love and a desire for that person's best. Let me share this. Do not expect the lost people of this world to act righteous. Do not expect the people out in the world to do it right. That's why it's so critical and important for us to do it right so that we can show them. As we share the truth, they can also see the truth in action. They can see what a healthy marriage is. They can see the wrestling and the struggling of being pure and the wrestling of the sexual immoral sins that we're tempted with. And that when we don't give in and that we walk with Jesus and we, and we say, no, this isn't right and I, this isn't what God desires for me and I can set aside my own desires and I can follow the Lord and what he has, we're showing to the world what it means to have a real and genuine relationship with Jesus and the peace and the joy that floods over us. Lisa, when we were married before we got married, we wrestled with staying pure. I thought she was hot. I still think she's hot. It was hard. And as we were wrestling and struggling, one of the lies that Satan 
told me was, you better not tell anyone else because, Aaron, you're weird. And what you guys are going through, people are going to look down on you. They're going to treat you different. It's one of my greatest regrets that I didn't go and talk to our, our youth workers. Because <laughs> I talked to them later and they're like, dude, why did you not say something? You knew we loved you. We're here to support you and encourage you and pray with you and help hold you accountable. But it was the lie of Satan. Regardless of what has happened in the past for you, today can start a new day. It can start today where you find joy in the sexuality that honors God. And so if you need help, you're not weird. In fact, you're normal. I thought of Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Where God has a conversation with Cain. Cain will later kill his own brother because of jealousy and selfishness. God warned Cain, and he said this, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to rule over you. He says, do well to do what's right. While there is temptation that is just around the corner, and I will tell you, because we've talked about it today and tomorrow, you will be encountered even more. It just happens that way. What you do, understand sin is crouching at your door. But God has given us a way of escape. We are not alone. And the Spirit of God lives inside of us. I know some of this is heavy, and I know some of this brings up probably uh, for some of you just um, bad memories or regrets or things that you wish you would do differently. My desire is not to pound you down, to make you feel worthless. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. You are of great worth to God. And he desires to use you in great ways. But it's his ways, not our ways. It's not what I think. It's not what I desire. It's not your feelings or emotions or circumstances that make the truth the truth. The truth comes from the word of God. And when we seek it out and we seek to live it out, it is a struggle and it's hard. But God blesses and he honors those who seek to live the truth. And so we're confronted as we are each Sunday when the word of God is opened and preached. I hope you've heard God's word this morning. I hope that you see God's perspective on what sexual immorality looks like and what marriage looks like. I wish I had several more weeks. It's, it's a topic that we'll talk about again down the road. But let me encourage you, would you honor God in this area that is so awesome and so great? And what we see runs from the very beginning of the book. And actually we see it in Revelation and, 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 and the adultery that you start reading. You start reading the book of Revelation and you see the comments and the things that are said about leaders and nations and the adultery that's taking place there, it runs throughout the whole book. We've got to get a grip on this. And we've got to pursue holiness, folks. People laugh at the church and the thought that they're trying to be sexually moral, sexually right. We've allowed our children to do whatever the world 
has said is okay. And it's time to take a stand. And we do that how we live, how we live out both grace and truth. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you again for the authority of your word. I'm thankful, Lord, that you have not um, only called us to live for you, but you have given us help. And we, we, Lord, we just struggle. There's times that we just struggle and we wrestle against the flesh and blood. But, but that's not the war. The war is against principalities, against powers, against the evil one who desires to lie and deceive us. And ultimately, his desire is to destroy us and to destroy the world. Yet we see you as a loving and gracious father who has not only told us that he loves us, but you've shown that to us when you sent your son Jesus and when he gave his life for us, when he rose from the dead and conquered sin and death, it became a cry to us as followers of Jesus that we are more than conquerors of him with him who lives in us. And so we're no longer bound by the chains of sin. We've been set free. Help us to live like free men and women, not giving in and not listening to the temptations that Help us to think that gratifying ourselves is okay. Lord, I pray that you would purify this church. That we would be a people who see sexuality as a joyful thing. And that we would be obedient to your word, not because it's a bunch of things that we can't do, but because it's the right. You've told us what's right and what's wrong, and there's great blessing in living what is right. Maybe as you sit there right now, you just need to repent. Let me encourage you to do that. Would you repent of the sin, maybe there's sexual sin in your heart you're wrestling with or that you've wrestled with and you need the forgiveness of God. Confess it to him now. Lord, I pray that you would help us in our repentance, that we turn from our sin. We don't just say that we're sorry, but Lord, we move away from it in pursuit of holiness, of what is right and pure. And in that pursuit, we know, Lord, that your word helps guide us. It's the lamp unto our feet and it's the light unto our path. It gives us life. And so may we be people in the in the midst of the times where we're tempted, Lord, may we pull your word out and read it and study it and cry out to you in our minds and in our hearts, but even vocally, Lord, that we would flee from temptation, flee from the sexual immorality that's all around us, and that we would pursue you. And I pray that you would bless these people, that as a congregation, Lord, you would continue to do great things for your glory and for your honor so that the world may see that there is truly a God and that he loves them and desires what's best for them. And so that our children and the generations to come may see examples 
And while imperfect, they may see people striving after you, Lord. Desiring for what is right. Seeking what is holy. Lord, we desperately need your help. And I'm thankful that when we call upon you, you're not sleeping, you're not slumbering, but you're there waiting, desiring, already manifesting yourself in ways to help us. So may we take great joy in what you've given us the gift of marriage and the gift of sex. We pray this in the name of Jesus.